Different ages, different backgrounds, different stories. One common denominator. The desire to unleash a powerhouse woman. Selling on heels. Give a girl the right shoes and she will conquer the world. Selling is a craft and a science. Come to learn with us the superpower behind behavior for sales. Human Behavior Hacker School. Hi everyone, this is our first segment on Selling Ladies on Hills. And we have somebody really special today because it's funny how life works. We know each other, we teach in the same place, but we never met face to face. And when I approach her with this crazy idea, she jumps and says, yeah, let's do it. Alexine, thank you very much for being our first guest. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing really well, and I'm excited to be here and to be part of the show. Well, you live and reside in Chicago, correct? Yep, that's right. Uh, but you wasn't born in Chicago. Where are you coming from? Um, I was born in Lafayette, Indiana, so just about two hours south of here, so not too far. You went to college there, too? Yep, I went to Purdue University. Um, my dad is actually on faculty there, so he teaches mechanical engineering, but um, I still go back pretty often, usually once a month, just to visit family. What did you study in college? Um, I studied uh, an interesting combo, retail management and entrepreneurship. So I went to college and graduated with every intention of becoming a retail buyer, Um, and that was kind of my goal when I left university and what ended up happening is I ended up in sales. Like everybody does, we all kind of fall into sales, it seems. So, um, so very interesting, uh, pathway to get here. When you were six years old or 10 or 12 years old, what was your dream? What do you want to be more ladies want to be ballerina or the first astronaut? What was your dream? What do you want to be? Yeah, good question. So I actually, um, I wanted to be uh, a brain surgeon. I used to tell people that my entire childhood that I was going to go to Johns Hopkins and go into medicine and become a brain surgeon. I have this whole, you know, elevator pitch from a very young age. Um, but it turns out I am a, a very big hypochondriac and I'm terrified of bloodborne illness. So the medical route was not going to be one that worked for me. So um, sadly that uh, I was not able to become a brain surgeon. Did you ever work on cells with medical equipment or anything related to doctors? Uh, no, no. <laughs> so But I guess that could, that would have made sense though. I wish uh, in some ways that, that probably would have been a good idea just to be able to kind of tap that side. Um, I did do um, a, a first responder training and like went through the process to become a first responder many years ago, but That was kind of the extent of that world for me. So how you ended up in sales? Because I was reading a report and you are uh, on the 100 top sales people on the United States and you are below the 50s. So on the first 50 and you're the only lady and that list, you're the first one on the list. How in a, such a young career You had done such a print on the market and people recognizing you. Tell me your story. Yeah, so um, so much like a lot of people in sales, I don't think I realized you could do sales as a career. So when I was going through university and I was you know, growing up, I didn't really consider this as a career path whatsoever. 
But when I look back, I mean, I was selling my entire childhood. So I grew up, my mom owns a restaurant and catering business. So from the time I was born, I was basically in her restaurant all the time. And we would have kind of our little unspoken agreement where she would get a lot of inventory. So she had a storefront and she would get cases of different jams or salsas, whatever she was going to put up in the storefront. And if I get for every box I would sell, she would like buy me a beanie baby or something. It was totally silly. And so that was kind of my first commission structure at age, you know, seven. So what I would do is just linger near the cash register and whenever folks were going to check out for their lunch, I would say, you know, here's a jam. Like we just got these in. It has this really beautiful aroma and flavor to it. And every single person would buy them. So it would happen like once a day, I would just clear through a box of inventory and, you know, she loved it because it helped the restaurant and I loved it because I got a beanie baby. Um, but that was really, I mean, ironically, it was just a really early commission structure. And then on top of that, any kind of um, school fundraiser that we had, like anything that had those catalogs where you would go door to door, I would go insane. Like I would go to every person my parents knew. I would run around my neighborhood. Um, my parents got to the point where they would literally buy stuff out of the catalog. So I would stop going to my neighbors because it was so intrusive. So um and I literally, I mean, it's interesting too, because, you know, obviously sales has changed a lot in 20 years or so, but when I would go door to door, um, what I would do is keep notes on when people were home or when they weren't home. So I could, I actually created like my own prospecting technique and canvassing technique from a super early age, age you have your own CRM at the age of seven years old. Basically, I mean, it's a piece of paper, but yeah, I was like, this person is never home, but you know, before 6 PM or. This person, like there were certain people I knew would always buy from me if I caught like the wife or the husband. So I would go at different times. So I would catch the right buyer. So it's weird because that is sales. It's like a CRM system. I'm, ide I'm identifying my ideal customer profile. I'm finding my decision maker, but at the age of, you know, 10. So I did a lot of door to door. And then when I went to college, like I said, I mean, I, thought that I wanted to go into buying because what I thought buying was, was going to be this really glamorous life of traveling the world and going to Milan and looking at fabrics and um, doing all this stuff. And what it turned out is I was probably going to be in a stockroom for the next 10 years or, you know, cause I really wanted to work for like, uh, you know, a really upscale brand like a Neiman Marcus. Um, so I actually ended up getting into the preliminary stages of Neiman Marcus's buying program. And what happened is you actually have to work in a storefront for six months, like in one of their locations. So I worked on the one on Michigan Avenue here. Um, and you have to, you know, basically sell for that six months. And then at the end of the six months, I think it was, then you get a letter of recommendation for your manager. And then you can apply for this, you know, to officially join this program. So what happened was I got to the end of this program and my manager at the time, she was really the one that stopped me. And she said, you know, there's, you know, I'll recommend you, of course, but you're having, you know, 10, $20,000 weeks in a small, you know, just area of the store. Like these are not numbers that we would normally see, you know, in these small storefronts. So she's like, I think that you should explore. And I think there's something else here. And that's the sales side. And so I was really blessed that when I came into that role specifically, they actually had a commission structure kind of like what a SAS commission structure was. You would have like um, a, a three to 5%, you know, commission that you could earn based on what percent of quota you were. So it kind of got me in the right mindset and the right headspace to then go into sales. So 
Um, after that, I just decided I wanted to go into tech sales. And then I started at Visa Now and it just kind of took off from there. So your first work was in fashion. Yes. Yep. I was sure that I was going to work for a large fashion brand and that that was going to be my life. <laughs> so how you escalate from your first job in fashion to where you are today? Um, I mean, I think that a lot of that story really parallels like how I got from one place to another. For me, I think it kind of spun up when I was working with Neiman Marcus, it kind of spun up some old feelings of liking to sell when I was really young and it got me excited again. And I realized how much I, I missed a lot of that because I did some fundraising and different things in college, but I really took a big step back from a lot of what I used to do when I was younger. So I think it just naturally kind of happened that once I dipped my toe back into that world, I realized, oh, I actually really do like sales. I just don't want to be in um, B2C sales. I want to go to B2B sales. So once I figured that out and that kind of clicked in my head, then I realized, you know, okay, now I need to look at B2B companies. And I found Visa Now. And at the time, they're now called Envoy Global. But at the time, they had an entire sales class that was full. So they didn't even really have a role that was open for me. But I happened to get into the interview process. They were focused on streamlining visas for um, companies that were trying to hire foreign nationals. And I had lived abroad three times. So they were like, it's, you know, this is interesting. And they just took a total shot on me. I mean, I had no experience. I didn't know what cold calling was. I had no idea what a CRM was. So they took a big shot on me and then it ended up paying off for both sides because within, you know, within a year I was their top salesperson and that team grew to almost 50 reps at one point. So um, so really incredible journey, but definitely really grateful for that experience too, because that really started my career in SaaS sales very early. You was mentor or you was self-thought to yourself, okay, I need to learn this in order to uh, get where I want to go. Um, you know, I'm very results oriented. So it's just, for me, it was like a non-negotiable, like whatever I have to do to hit my quota is what I'm going to do. So when I started there, I mean, we had some training um, and, you know, there was some development, but really I just sat down and started cold calling. I mean, there was nothing pretty about it. Like there were days that I was making 175 cold calls. Um, I was running my own demos. We didn't have an SDR, BDR function. So I was my own SDR. I was my AE. We didn't have solutions consultants. So I was running my, you know, I was my own SE as well. So there was just, you know, such a heavy role all together. Um, but a lot of it was just self, you know, wanting to be successful and how can I get there? So, you know, how do I push myself to really, you know, create these results? And so I tried to emulate what some of the top salespeople were doing. But then with that, I just prospected like crazy and set as many demos as I could. And then I realized the more demos that I was having, the more comfortable I was getting. And then I started to really hone in on like what, what a deal smelled like. Like I could tell right away if I cold called into a company, I could tell you like, I'm going to close this deal. Like as soon as that first cold call took place, because I got to a point where I was so comfortable with the product. So I think a lot of it was just self-driven um, and then trying to emulate whatever was around me. Um, but yeah, just a lot of internal drive. I think that for most salespeople than I have trained or talk, they're more afraid to call calling than a snake. So you're really comfortable in something. Yeah, most, I don't know what is your, your, your intake on that, but when you talk to a sales rep, like, oh my God, don't make me do cold calling. That is painful. Like I'm not, I, I don't have my skin 
thick enough to be rejected like 175 calls like get to a point like half says no you need to take a break like so it doesn't affect you uh, what do you think that was your intake or your prepare your preparation or or, or that driven that you have inside you that you can pick up the call and talk to anyone and close the deals? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the fact that my first job was so heavy on cold calling, like at the time, LinkedIn wasn't really there yet. So you weren't really using LinkedIn. And data was really hard to come by. Like a lot of these really strong data tools weren't at their prime, you know, seven years ago. So a lot of times, I wouldn't have access to their email. So the only way in was phone. And to be frank, like you didn't even have direct phone lines. You would have um, the main phone line. And then, so not only are you trying to like pitch to your ideal prospect, but then on top of that, you're trying just to get to their phone number in the first place because you have to get through the gatekeepers. So I really bashed my head a lot of times on like gatekeepers and trying to learn how to work through them or trying to work through lower points of contact to even get to the correct phone number. So I feel like my level of comfort with cold calling comes from the fact that I didn't have a choice but to get comfortable. Like there wasn't another way in um, at the time when I started in sales. So I think I had kind of a different infancy in sales too, because I was also setting all of my own meetings, which a lot of AEs didn't do at the beginning of their sales career. So I think um, that's helped me a lot too. But I also try with cold calling. The biggest thing that's helped me all along is, you know, thinking this is just a person on the other side of the phone. Like I'm not talking to, you know, someone, you know, necessarily of grandeur, you know, in the world, like it's just a person on the other end of the phone sitting at their desk and they're not expecting my call. And I need to be respectful of that. But at the same time, I have a solution that I think could really help them. And that could change, you know, the way that they do their work on a day-to-day basis. So I almost feel like I owe it to that person, you know, in my mind to try to show them what another solution looks like. And, you know, and I always am very fair about like, if it's not one of the things I do a good job of is I'll say, you know, if it's not a fit, we can definitely part ways after, you know, a discovery call or after a demo, like I'm very, I'm very big on giving people an out if they want it. And if it makes sense. So I think just humanizing the process and remembering that you're talking to a human being, you're not talking to a robot or someone like someone's goal is not to ruin your day necessarily. Um, but to be respectful of the nose sometimes too, where it makes sense. From 1,000 MBAs in the United States, only 16 talk or touch some part of sales. So the craft of selling half is what your predisposition and the way you learn. And another one is the training. Did you receive any training or you keep learning and yourself from mentoring and seeing others and putting yourself and set your standards higher, higher, and keep going. How you get to this level of expertise? Because again, you are, on, how many salespeople we have in the United States and you are on the 100 list on the first 50. So that is not something that you get granted because you're nice. It's because you really put uh-huh. numbers together. Yeah, I think, I think I am number 84, though, on the last list. So I'm in the bottom 50, but it's still the top 100. So I'm happy about that. Um, but I think um, training wise, it's been a mix. Like, uh, you know, some companies have had training programs. A lot of those training programs have been run by other reps, for instance. So, you know, they aren't necessarily tasked with training and development as like a key part of their role. Like they're also trying to sell. So I think I've had kind of a mixed experience as far as company provided training for good and bad. 
Um, so I think a lot of it has been self-trained and also just kind of seeking out others outside of my company. So right now, like I'm heavily involved with Rev Genius and I'm constantly sharing ideas there. And then, you know, we're both involved with rework training. You know, even though we're both coaching there, I still learn a lot from that. Um, and there's other speakers that come in so that I learn from that. And so I feel like I have leaned a lot on the, just the sales community as a whole to learn from them. I've read so many LinkedIn posts and articles and, um, you know, you take everything with a grain of salt. Everybody, some people hate cold calling. Some people like it. Some people are indifferent. So I try to just take in as much information as I can accumulate it and then take the pieces that make sense for me and then run with those. And so I feel like I, I owe a, a great um, deal of credit to a lot of the sales folks in the community because those are the ones that I've learned a lot from. So that's kind of been part of my training has just been observing from the sidelines um, people all over the world. I mean, people overseas, what are they doing? Like people, you know, uh, across the country, like what kind of strategies are they deploying? And then just trying to piece together, you know, something that makes sense for my process. You are involved in a lot of institutions. You do a little uh, pro bono and, and teaching and you, I don't know how you divide. I don't think how you do it in 24 hours, seven days a week. So really I, I admire when I saw your resume, like how the hell she managed all and be on top of the software. So what is, what is the, 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 the reason they drive you to mentoring and being so involved with the community? Why? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes way back. So again, my father's a professor. So I grew up with a very academic upbringing, like I, you know, constantly had to have good grades, like it was just a non negotiable. Um, but I think there was that piece that kind of stuck with me. But then I think on top of that, one of the biggest pieces that got me into teaching and mentorship was the fact that as a as a woman in sales, what I noticed with every company I joined, um, uh, the further I got up, the less women there are. Like the further I get tenured into sales, usually I'm one of one or one of two on the team. And so what I really wanted to do um, initially, my purpose was to specifically help women get interested in a career in sales and teach them, you know, why this is such a good career path for you and why you can be successful in it. So that was, you know, selfishly my beginning of, of mentorship. And then from there, it branched out like, um, now I'm teaching for rework. I still do work with Victory Lap and Aspireship. I just started teaching with, and all of those groups have different focuses. Rework, for instance, is focused on more underrepresented groups. So that's, you know, another piece for me too. Diversity and inclusion is very important. I'm, you know, it's not just women that are lacking on, on sales teams. It's a lot of different people. Um, so I think that through those opportunities, it's helping me pay it forward a little bit, but I'm also learning about things every single time I'm teaching too. I'm hearing stories from students, um, specifically rework that we both teach with. I mean, I just hear stories all the time and some of it's, you know, tough. Some of these are situations that I'll probably never have to face. And these students face it with such, you know, they're just eager to learn and they're excited to move forward and they just want an opportunity. And so that for me keeps me super motivated. I just really love the passion and I appreciate the students and the energy they bring to really any of the courses that I teach with. But, um, you know, I think for me, it's just, I want the sales teams of the future to look a little bit different. I want it to be uh, a really diverse mix of people. And I think it will be better for companies too, because it will bring a whole range of ideas to the table and we'll be able to try and test new strategies that we hadn't thought of before. So 
I'm excited and optimistic for the future of sales, but I still want to help lay the groundwork to help us get there. Okay. Uh, as we always say, and I always hear salespeople say, nobody is born says, I want to be in sales. <laughs> and I have a sales rep who says, like, my mom invented me another title because she doesn't want to tell that I'm selling because people relate selling with selling cars. And that is an old fashioned, it's, an, it's, it's a new, different era. The way that we selling has changed in the last five years. Yes. to that some people cannot keep up. So you are 20 and you need to ask yourself three questions about that, what I need to do, how I need to do it and how to start in sales. What you were asked to yourself, to that person who was 20, who started this and like, oh my God, what I need to do, what is the next step? Profiling a customer is the challenge sales reps face every day. What if I tell you, you can read anyone in 90 seconds? What if I tell you it can be done? Come to learn with us, Human Behavior Hacker School. Um, I think first and foremost, I would identify what, I would say what motivates me. Like, what am I really trying to do? Is it money? Um, for me, answering that question at 20, it wouldn't have been money. It would have been accolades, recognition. That's, that was my key driver. So that in and of itself is a little bit different flavor. Um, I think other questions I would have asked myself, you know, that's stereotypical, where do you want to be at 5, 10, 15 years down the road? Um, and having that picture in mind, it does sales align with that. Um, many times sales is an entryway for really any career path. There are a ton of CFOs that came from sales. There are a ton of CEOs that came from sales. So for me, sales was um, almost a safer career path because there are so many people that have gone on to do other things. So even if I didn't like sales at the end of the day, um, I still could go somewhere else with it. And I would be able to have, you know, knowledge that would be applicable to future jobs. Um, and then I guess the last question I would have um, asked myself is, you know, who do you want to emulate? And I think with that, um, that answer has changed over the years. I mean, I think initially it's like whoever, you know, the biggest of the best was now it's like, who, now that answer has changed for me. It's, you know, who do I really respect in this space? Amy Bullis is someone that I constantly, you know, talk about because I think she's wonderful, but that's someone who's like compassionate, who gives back to the community, listens, cares. And that's more of my goal now versus being like the best of the best or having like a million followers. It's just, how can I be more compassionate? What can I give back to this community? And you know, what can I get out of it as well? But definitely more so, like, what can I add value to from this point? Alexine, you went to one of the most stressful situations a human being can have. There says there are five things that are terrible in life. One of them is looking for a job or changing a job. You decide to do that not only from your house, on the pandemic, when you're not networking face-to-face, -face, when everybody doesn't want to move because afraid to everything again, Alexine went to it and you succeed and now you started a new a new process, a new job. Can you tell us how was the process and what is your advice for people who are thinking maybe the same and like, I'm afraid, my wife tell me no, my husband says no, my friend says don't move. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, you know, I'll tell you, it wasn't pretty having conversations with people like, uh, telling them that I was going to proactively job search during the pandemic. I mean, everybody's visceral reaction was, oh, you should just stay put. Like everybody just stay put. Nobody go anywhere. 
And for me, I, I don't live that way. Like if I feel like there's a better opportunity out there, if I feel like there's a company that's a better fit for me, I'm going to go after it. And so it's so interesting because the way that I started this search was, you know, I started back having conversations really in like March and April timeframe, not necessarily with the full intention of, of leaving right then, just starting to have conversations. And I really empathize with anybody that was actively job searching during those two months, because I think March and April were probably the absolute worst time, especially if you were actively seeking and needing a position. So I really used that time to network with a lot of local sales leaders, a lot of people that I highly respected. Um, you know, I kind of put out some feelers that maybe I'm going to be making moves in the next couple months. Um, but really, I use that as an opportunity just to network with some people that I haven't been able to talk to for years, because really, I came straight from yellow to logic. So I really haven't had an opportunity to interview out in the last four years. So for me, it was, you know, it gave me a chance to talk to some new people, which I was really excited about. Um, but with the, with the job search, I mean, it was definitely a different ball game. I mean, I think the interesting thing is companies are still hiring for sales. Um, so there are a ton of companies hiring for sales positions right now, which is wonderful. I mean, my LinkedIn feed is just blowing up. The difference is where companies used to hire five to six people for an account executive sales class or an SDR class. Now they're hiring one to two that are very specific. So it's a much more competitive market that you're walking into. The role that I ended up accepting, there were 243 applicants in one position. So, I mean, those numbers are intimidating. Even if you have a lot of accolades and you have a strong track record, like that, that number could intimidate anyone. So I think um, the main difference was understanding from the get-go that every move in the interview process counts. I mean, and starting with before you even get to the interview. So a lot of my interviewing process is very similar to my sales process in that I'm, you know, basically canvassing. I basically made my ideal customer list. So I made a list of the companies that I feel like uh, are really interesting that I feel like are doing something innovative that I feel like are COVID proof. That was a big one because we don't know if there's going to be a second wave of this. And um, in companies where either I knew someone or I knew a leader, um, ironically, the position I ended up accepting, I didn't know anyone at the company. So that kind of changed around. But most of the companies that I got offers from and that I was in final stages with that I actually had to pull out of the process, I knew their sales leadership team. So I had kind of a connection point. But I basically did a batch of, you know, messages to people I knew first. If I didn't know anyone, I would either reach out to sales leadership directly, or I actually went through board members in multiple instances where I didn't know the board member either, but I was like, here's a quick, um, and I actually put this in my second to last uh, LinkedIn post, the exact message I used, but it was like, here's a quick elevator pitch on myself. Um, I really want to talk to your sales leadership team. Would you feel comfortable making an introduction for me? Um, let me know if I can make any introductions for you because a lot of those board members may have investment interests and maybe I can introduce them to companies that they're looking to invest in. So um, I tried to create kind of a quid pro quo situation, um, but that was the outreach piece. It was basically reaching out through anybody I knew or doing cold messages or doing like video messages sometimes too, if it was something that I was really passionate about, just shooting a quick video and saying like, this is why I wanna work here. Um, and then from there, um, I have a very uh, buttoned up process when I interview. So I basically create a prep sheet for every single interview that I do, regardless if it's a recruiter, if it's a hiring manager, if it's chief revenue officer, whatever the title of the person, I have the exact same process. 
So it's a three-part document. Part one is background on the person I'm interviewing with. Again, nobody usually will put together background on like a recruiter, for instance, but I do. I'll put together their um, education background, like where they went to university, what they're interested in, who they follow on LinkedIn, if we have anybody in common, um, how long they've been with the you know, organization, whatever details I feel like are relevant. The second section is a blurb on the company, a quick elevator pitch on the company so that if and maybe when they ask you, what does our company do? I'm not flailing around for any answer. And then third is my questions. So those changed with every single interviewer. So the questions for the recruiter or the HR person were more focused on culture. The questions for the sales rep were more focused on day to day. The questions for the sales manager were focused on KPIs. And the questions for the CRO or CEO, you know, those start to get more into vision or future of the growth of the team or future goals and initiatives. Um, but that's really my prep for each interview is here's here's my guiding light of what I'm going to go through in this process, just in case we hit a snag and I feel off or um, what happened a lot of times with these interviews, people started with questions, which is an interesting, I haven't had that happen before in interviews where they actually before we even got into the conversation, they were like, what questions do you have for me right off the bat? And so that's a good time to have some ready to go because that's a very awkward starting point if you can't think of anything. Um, and then, you know, with the interview process, one of the other strategies that I deployed, because again, the biggest piece now is differentiation during the interview process was I did video messages instead of thank you notes. So I would actually shoot like a video. I'd put in three key takeaways from whatever conversation I just had and then send it as a video. Thank you. And then I still sometimes did emails too, but those emails were very like hyper-focused on three or four key areas that were very specific to our conversation, showing that I'm, that I'm taking very detailed notes. Um, so, I mean, there are flavors of this interview process that were similar to what I've done in the past, but like the video interviewing was brand new. Um, and it's just a little bit different of a ball game right now, but there are a lot of companies hiring a lot of really, really good companies too. So everybody have an idol. Mine is Coco Chanel, for example. No, because what she, <laughs> about everybody represent, her first dress was a portrait when she was 40 and she was the only woman who never sold her company until the day she died. Carolina Herrera, everybody else saw the company, somebody else managed. She was the designer and the CEO. So that's one of my idols for that reason. Beside that, I love her clothing and everything that has to do with that. So that's my idol. That's the, the woman I follow. I want to be like her. So do you have any idol, even though on the sales uh, business or a woman or a man or whatever is like, I follow this person because per this person inspired me to never give up. Yeah, I mean, on the sales side, definitely Amy Vola. She's the one I always go back to. I think she, you know, she wasn't my recruiter during this process, but she ironically kind of became my recruiter. She coached me on the background. I would, I would talk to her about conversations I was having. She would also catch me like when I was, um, you know, if I, if I said something, she's like, that sounds sketchy. You need to dig into that. You know, try, when I would try to glaze over certain things and those are the kind of people you really need. But as far as, you know, idols, Outside of that, I think my parents are a really big inspiration for me. I know it's like cheesy to pick your parents instead of a celebrity, but um, my parents are both entrepreneurs. They both worked super hard. Um, you know, my mom, she started her business in her, you know, 20s. And at the time, women didn't like own 
a business on their own. And she refused to take any outside funding. She wouldn't take a single dollar. She was very headstrong. Um, and a lot, she, you know, a lot of other women weren't working at the time and she was working nonstop and she still works nonstop to this day. It drives me crazy. But, um, and then my dad, you know, he immigrated to the U S in his twenties, uh, hardly speaking any English. He went straight to MIT, graduated top of his class, um, became a professor, um, got, was one of the youngest to get tenure right away and now does keynote speaking for NASA for different events. So, I mean, he has had the most incredible career trajectory that you can imagine. Um, but well, you definitely have your parents' genes. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I you're, feel like you're... there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> no, no, but that's, that's, that's your, 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 your fire, your fire coming with your parents. I have the same example. My father's always told me, never be normal. Please yeah. don't. You're not going to be my daughter if you're normal. And that pushed me to, <laughs> to do things that are outside the box. I think parents are really important without, and sometimes because they're good or bad, because when they're bad, you want to get out of that situation stronger. And they're good. Yeah. You always come back to them and like you're learning from them and you have inspirations, inspiration from them too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I am very grateful that, both of them are hard workers. Um, and I think it just set a different uh, tone for me in my life. And, and, you know, starting from an early age, it was like, you know, I'd work in my mom's restaurant, I would have to get straight at, you know, I just started on a really good path. And I'm very grateful for my parents for putting me and I am privileged for having the ability to have parents that put me on that path that led me to be successful later. But I think, um, yeah, I don't know what I would do without them. So I'm very grateful for them. But yeah, the, my mom still to this day, I mean, seven days a week, she's like running around like crazy nonstop. So that hasn't changed at all. <laughs> well, last question. You need to tell us an embarrassed moment or a funny event or some some point in your career because everybody have it. I'm going to confess my, my first webinar, I throw up before, during, and after. I was so nervous <laughs> because I'm so used to, to reading people. Suddenly I put click and zoom and like, oh my God, there's nobody there. I was so nervous, like get sick. So that's more the most embarrassing moment in my life. And I always say it like, because people think, ah, because you're in behavior, like, no, it's horrible. This being on the videos, like <laughs> seeing yourself all the time. So that's my moment. I confess first, what was your most <laughs> embarrassing, funny, dash crazy moment in your career? Or maybe when you went to college, something like, oh my God, you're, you're at the end, you're human too. Yeah. I think one of my favorite stories, this is years ago, I won't name the company, um, but there was a top <laughs> sales guy at the time and he was like, nobody would ever meet his number. That was all. That was the first thing I was told on day one. No one will ever beat my sales number. I am the best. I make the most money. And I was like, all right, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't really know any better. So, um, so as I slowly started to creep up in sales and I was getting higher and higher in sales, he actually, I, so I finally closed an account and it teetered me over his number. I ended up doubling his number the year that he ended up and then he ended up leaving the company actually not because of that but i don't know why but um but when i was leaving the conference room where i was um where i was leaving the conference room where i was actually uh closing the deal i walked out and he flipped me off and i remember i called my parents because i was like i just got flipped off by the top sales guy like he just gave me the finger um and my uh my dad was like going on this you know lecture about professionalism in the workplace and i was like no you don't get it like i have finally 
made it in sales. Like I'm do like I finally am the top salesperson and someone's threatened by that. And it was a really cool feeling because it was just me like coming into myself. So it's just kind of a random moment, but it just always made me laugh later. I think about it all the time just because it was just such a weird experience, but it was also really powerful for me. It was like, here is the first time that I've really made an impact that I've made a mark and that someone really sees me. Somebody once told me when you start having enemies, you know that you made it. And like, yeah, I don't get it. Like, yeah. Work so hard that your idols become your competitors. Oh, and like, and it took me a long time to understand, but it's true. Now I have people who that have a hobby has hate me and every post and I do it. I'm like, Yes, I get it. <laughs> That's right. So, Alexine, <laughs> we're not going to talk about where you want to go in 10 years because that is a job interview. But what are your ambition, your career? What, what, what is your next path beside to start a new position in a company? We're not going to say anything at this point. Um, you have posted. And by the way, I would say to everyone to try to follow you and LinkedIn because you have been writing articles about how to do the process online. You was really open and even you give examples and how people can contact recruiters and how to do thank you notes. Most people, they says, oh, this is my turf. This is my secret. I'm not going to share it. And you has been really grateful sharing everything on the process with everyone who want to hear it. But how you envision yourself? What is what is your next path? Where you want to go? Maybe change industry? What what is what is with you? Yeah, I think um, yeah, and thank you for saying that. Um, I think for me, the next play, you know, I'm starting this new job. I'm going to be in an individual contributor role. I'm excited to just hit the ground running, hit my quotas. They have a really part of the reason I took this specific role is they have a really strong career path um, that moves into leadership. So. I mean, in the next few years, I would like to start to move down that road. Um, I, as we know, there's not that many women in sales leadership. Um, so it's something that's been kind of itching at me for a while. But I still, you know, I love doing sales, like individual contributor sales. So I think I still have like some time in me that I want to just focus on sales. But down the road, hopefully go into leadership. Um, and then very, very far down the road, probably do something on my own and potentially do something that is, um, you know, consulting teaching focus for sales, um, but that's much further down in the future. So uh, we'll see. I don't know. Things have changed so much in 10 years already. So we'll see what the next 10 years holds. Well, I want to say uh, clearly to everyone, when I approach Alexine through LinkedIn, hey, we both teach and rework. I have this crazy idea. Three minutes later, I saw in my calendar, we have a meeting and she was like, oh my God, I love the idea. Let me know what I can do to help. And that is Alexine approach to everything. And everybody who knows you says, oh my God, she's a doll. She's tough like a rock, but in the <laughs> other side, whatever you need, she is going to be on top of that. So Alexine, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to be following what are your next step in your new position. And I'm looking forward to go back to normal, to go back to teaching and rework. I miss my guys. I miss the, in, the, the, the interaction that's, as you says, make you grow because you learn as much from your students as you learn from your teachers. Yes. Thank you so much for this experience. And I'm also excited to get back at physically in the classroom, hopefully soon. And um, just thank you for starting this series. And I'm so excited to hear from some of the future women that you have to upcoming on this uh, webinar. So I'll be keeping an eye out too. Yeah. It's about the stories. It's not about fighting another gender. It's about 
improving uh, other ladies to come back to this uh, this career that I think is basically give you independence. And one of the things I love about sales, even though I don't do sales, I train behavioral sales, is that you can determine how much money you can do, how much you can grow. And that's what is fascinating me about sales. Yes, you and me both. (laughs) Thank you very much, my lady. I see you next. Thank you. Selling is a craft and a science. Come to learn with us the superpower behind behavioural sales. Human Behaviour Hacker School. Different ages, different backgrounds, different stories. One common denominator. The desire to unleash a powerhouse woman. Selling on heels. Give a girl the right shoes and she will conquer the world.